This is Faith and Letters. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. this week is Fred Bonson. Fred is the author of Soil and Sacrament, a spiritual memoir of food and faith, and an essayist whose work has appeared in magazines like Harper's, Orion, and Emergence. Much of Fred's work focuses on contemplative prayer, both figures within the contemplative prayer tradition in Christianity and also the contemporary movement to rediscover Christian mysticism. Uh, as well as his own practice of silent prayer and general fascination with Christian mystics. We talked about how to write about elusive concepts that are sometimes antithetical to language, uh, and then later got into his admiration for Thomas Merton and our mutual love for the Oregon nature writer Barry Lopez. If, like me, you have found concepts and practices like mystical contemplation or silent prayer to be thorny in reality, as much as they are beautiful in the abstract, then I hope you'll be edified by listening to Fred unpack his own real-life experience of seeking earnestly after God. How would you define contemplation? For me, I would say contemplation is not an escape, but a way in. It's it's a deeper form of engagement. And I think that's the big realization I've come to uh, came to pretty early on thanks to just reading the the desert fathers and mothers and and getting pretty quickly past the kind of popular misconceptions around contemplation mindfulness silent prayer all of that as a sort of you know narcissism or whatever i mean there's just there's a lot of misconceptions around contemplative practice as yeah as a form of escape as a something that we don't really have time for in this world of problems. And, and I think when you start practicing it, what I've learned is that we don't have time not to do contemplative practice because unless we're working on ourselves and in the Christian tradition, allowing God to work on us through silence and through that silent encounter of just resting with God, unless we're making time for that, then we're just causing ourselves harm, causing harm to those around us. We're just kind of inevitably going to be thrashing around in our lives. And I felt that thrash in my own life. Um, So for me, I came to contemplative prayer really out of desperation. Just traditional Christianity wasn't working for me. It wasn't, wasn't doing anything to me that I could noticeably discern in my life. It was a set of belief propositions that seemed pretty interesting but in terms of the way that christ the holy spirit works on a person i didn't really see that happening much in the american protestantism i'd been raised in it was mostly a a set of value propositions that you assent to and for me the the great discovery of in the middle of my life and i've been to you know i have a degree from a prestigious divinity school, a master's of theological studies. And, you know, I, I have a pretty, pretty 
you know, decent grasp on Christian history and tradition and scripture and, and, and all the stuff. But it wasn't until I think I hit 40 and um, really went through some deep reckoning with some of my childhood wounds, uh, being a missionary kid, going to boarding school in Nigeria, grappling with that through therapy, but then also in tandem with that, discovering contemplative prayer uh, and really coming into that through Thomas Merton and then going deep into the Desert Fathers and the and the early writers um, that I found that sort of aha moment happening in my own life. It was really a, a kind of spiritual awakening for me and, and still is, it's ongoing and it's going to be ongoing the rest of my life. It was, I wasn't entirely able to, to gauge the ages of your sons contextually from reading, but it, if you're saying you came to this around the age of 40, would it be the case that you were already a dad at that point? when you sort of started this phase of your, of your spiritual practice and journey? Yeah. So I have two teenage boys and one preteen boy or tween, I guess. And um, yeah, I think that was part of it. That frustration of not being, not feeling like a natural father, like, you know, fatherhood is, is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, I, I'm not really a natural around kids. Um, I love my kids. It's not a lack of love. It's just, it didn't come naturally to me as I think it comes to other fathers. And so feeling that struggle of how to raise these three young human beings, you know, who are totally different from me, uh, who have my, me and my wife's genetic material, but who are their own little images of God, you know, walking around in the world with their own agendas. And, um, yeah, so I think a lot of my uh, my own spiritual growth has come from just that recognition of my own failure and inadequacy as a father. Um, yeah, so I I'm, I think that comes out in different ways in my in my writing, but I feel like it's something I feel more and more drawn to leaning into is that. Uh, yeah, that that tension between um, being drawn to contemplative practice, stillness, silence, solitude, uh, and as I said earlier, those are not forms of escape. They're deeper forms of engagement, but they they easily can become forms of escape when you're confronted with the difficulties of being a father. In my case, I can resonate with what you were saying about. I guess in general terms of just kind of grappling with my own identity as a dad. So I guess it's it's two parts for me. It, it feels overwhelming to think about uh, kind of making the time to be silent, which I think is actually also related to um, the fact that silence and sitting in that way feel like they accomplish nothing, like there's nothing productive about them, which you touch on at some point. And also this this deeper sense of, I guess, longing for it. Maybe that's the tension for me. It's like I sense more and more like uh, that I want whatever some people seem to find in that still place. Um, and to that end, I, I, <laughs> the, the thing I just wanted to reference in terms of this essay that you've written called Keeping the World in Being is where you actually talk specifically about your practice and it's wonderfully candid and unromantic. You talk about like um, often waking up before your sons uh, when the weather is nice. Sometimes you head out onto the deck, but 
um, you know, yeah, you're, you're sitting, um, and you're trying to be silent. Um, but it doesn't feel like there's a huge agenda. And at least in the passage that I'm, I'm thinking of it, it felt kind of wonderfully free from, from internal pressure of the kind that I feel like I've often put on myself and maybe as a watermark of my personality, but also in some ways inherited or somehow taken in as regards what is supposed to be happening in prayer. So you talk about, you know, you say, sometimes I daydream, <laughs> sometimes I watch the sun climb over Saddle Peak, sometimes I weep. And it's just been so hard um, as someone who grew up in a, an evangelical American context in which prayer was usually understood uh, to be sort of literal talking to God, which is odd, right? Because no one's talking back. It's a strange it's a strange thing in its own right, but it's just been, that that's a big transition to have gone through in adulthood as I've begun to uh, really explore other streams of, of Christianity. Did you, did you have like a, a hump to get over there yourself in terms of just kind of um, coming to terms with what that inner psychic experience of sitting in silence is like and sort of you know to, to the point that you made sitting with the breath trying to not follow the monkey mind or the the random thought trails because that that kind of seems like the whole game there but it's a game i've never been able to win with any consistency well i think i think one thing i would say is as much as we can show up to our practice without an agenda and without feeling like it has to have these results i think that's all for the better and um I think it's so easy for the mind to get pulled into these thoughts of, you know, well, I have to be getting something out of this, or, you know, I'm not noticing anything, what's going on, I must be doing it wrong. And, and there's, there's really no, like, um, you know, there's no one way to do this. I mean, I think we're talking about an individual human being just sitting in contact with our creator. And so there's all kinds of, there's as many ways to have that contact as there are human beings, you know, in the history of humanity. But I think, I think the, the ones who've gone before us, who've done this a lot have said, and, and, and a lot we've learned from the Buddhist tradition too, of just as much as you can sit in stillness and silence and um, note your thoughts as they watch as they float by. Um, I think a really helpful analogy I heard from Martin Laird uh, in his book, Into the Silent Land, is a really great introduction to contemplative prayer for any listeners who are wanting to get into this more. But I heard Martin Laird give a retreat at Mepkin Abbey a number of years ago, a Cistercian monastery in South Carolina. And he was saying, um, think of yourself as when you're in your, your prayer practice, think of yourself as Mount Zion. You are rooted and grounded, and there are weather patterns around Mount Zion. There's the clouds. Sometimes it's stormy. Sometimes it's sunny. But you're not engaging the weather patterns. You're not following those clouds and engaging them. Uh, and you are not the weather. You are Mount Zion. You're not your thoughts. You're not your emotions you are the unchanging Mount Zion or not unchanging because we do change, but, but just making the point that we are uh, the dwelling place of God. We're not the weather patterns around the mountain. And I think that's a really helpful analogy um, 
that I've come back to again and again. And so, yeah, when, you know, some days you're going to be distracted, you're going to not feel like sitting, you're going to have all kinds of emotions come up. And I think that's just, the more you do it, that just becomes more part of the process and just something to not really get too hung up on either way. Um, and I think too, like it, it doesn't have to be a set length. I mean, the, there are different schools of this, you know, Thomas Keating saying it should be two sits a day for 20 minutes each time. And I think the world community of Christian contemplation or what's the WCCM world Christian contemplation. I can't remember their full title. It's an acronym. Anyway, um, John Maine's society would say something similar, like, you know, it has to be a 20 minute set. I've kind of, I started with that kind of rigor and then I've come back to more of just some days I'm in contemplative prayer and silence. And some days I feel like I need to, to talk and, uh, and converse with God and then listen for what the response might be. So I've kind of come back to more of a hybrid spoken and listening kind of prayer you're a writer and you're 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 seeking to write at least on this topic about something that uh is a little tricky it seems to me because it's there's there's an obvious i guess inherent tension or sort of dynamic between just you know the act of putting something into language whether it's in the in the written form or or just talking about it like we are and then, of course, the act of silence, which is antithetical <laughs> to that on some level, or different, if not antithetical. Uh, it feels like there's a human impulse to connect with other people that, that the writer has, which is its own kind of paradox, because, you know, writing is a very solitary act. Have you, have you found it, it uh, challenging to write about silence and contemplation? Is, is there any sense in which that is um, a kind of like, especially as you talk about your own experience, a kind of opening of the oven door where you sort of lose some of that inner fire um, or sort of th there's a cost there where you don't get to just have that be an entirely private thing. What's it been like to, to navigate that balance of, of writing about something that in some ways you're describing as being beyond language? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that is the tension of writing about a kind of apophatic, wordless experience of, of you know, communion with God. Um, yeah, I feel that inadequacy and inability and and I think um, increasing lack of desire too to describe it. Like it, it, it does feel very intimate. And, and as soon as you try to name it or describe that experience, you lose something. And I'm conscious of that even, you know, just my previous thoughts shared with you, just how, <laughs> how inadequate it sounds to even try to talk about it. And yet we do, we like we're humans and we want to share our experience and we want to describe this amazing journey that we're all on. And I think that's the writerly impulse. And, you know, for me, I think um, I'm drawn to the kind of writers who allude to that, but who don't try to go too deep into mystical experience, but, but sort of triangulate their way toward it. I think for me, I'm drawn to writing about others as a way to get at my own questions 
And so I, I think of myself as a profile artist, you know, like a, like a painter painting profiles of people, um, painting portraits. Um, and I tried to write about people I'm really curious about. And so Thomas Merton was one. I followed him on his, I followed him 50 years after his death, I should say, on his Western journey out West. And I wrote about it and um, interviewed some of the people who met him, who knew him, some of the nuns. Uh, I have a recent piece that just came out in Harper's Magazine in the August issue in which I profiled a monk named Father Columbus Stewart, who's a Benedictine monk. And I followed him to Mali in West Africa on his search for, uh, or in his his uh, work preserving and digitizing ancient religious manuscripts. And I sort of wrote about him as a way to get at my own questions that I was bringing to that trip. So that's kind of what I do. I, I send myself off on these little adventures as a immersion journalist, following people I'm really drawn to and curious about. And then I, I bring my own set of questions and I try to answer those questions or maybe not answer, but try to engage those spiritual questions through the story of the person I'm profiling. I read both of those pieces, enjoyed them, read a piece that you wrote that, that prominently features uh, Richard Rohr, another Harper's piece. Um, and then I read a piece about uh, basically a profile of uh, indoor reflection on some few days that you actually spent with uh, Barry Lopez, the, the well-known nature writer and world traveler who died a couple years ago and lived not too far from where I live in Western Oregon. He, he, in some ways, he's like the ultimate example of someone who was super rooted for like 50 years in this one spot on the Mackenzie River and then visited like 90 countries. <laughs> it was just like the, uh, yeah, kind of arch example of, of a well-traveled person. Um, I've read most of his nonfiction. He's just a real touchstone for me. I, I love him. And he's, he's an enigmatic uh, literary figure in my life because he is, uh, he's, he's, you know, in, uh, on some level overt about having left the church, which in his case, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was Catholic as a child. And then at the at the same time, so he's not overtly, you know, a, a, a quote unquote Christian or Christian writer, but he also, I just read um, the posthumous essay collection of his that was put out, Embrace Fearlessly the Burning World, great title. And I feel like as much as, uh, you know, kind of more than ever in reading those essays, having read like six, seven, eight of his books already, I just felt this intense sense of, um, it was hard, hard to define, hard to talk about, but like whatever it is that we're talking about, that's kind of at the white hot center of what we're after when we're chasing God, like Barry got it. Like there was, you know, uh, the classical formulation of the good, the true, the beautiful, like he was on to that. He was hungry for that. He was affirming that. Um, yeah, just such a, a guy who also, I mean, I would humbly submit, as somebody who didn't know him personally, seemed like uh, 
I'm not going to say the rare writer, but like, you know, a, a writer for, for whom his, um, it seemed like in many ways his, his, his written aspirations and his actual lived personal life, his ethic of living were pretty consistent, like really, really matched up to one another. So maybe it's just a, maybe it's just a fanboy's invite to, to talk a little bit about Barry, but he was, I mean, he really seems like someone who was absolutely in this contemplative space um really uh, you know humbly present to the world cultivating a sense of awe before um you know the mystery of life and even at times again in that essay collection i mean he has a really powerful and moving um essay about a couple of kind of intense interactions that he describes as being interactions with Mary, the mother of God, um, a guy who, who seemed like he still had some kind of affinity for um, the divine, um, certainly. So I don't know. Tell, tell me a little, tell, let's talk a little bit about Barry. You stayed with him for three days. You, you obviously appreciate his work as well. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know Barry well, but um but I got to know him in the last couple of years of his life. And, and we, you know, I feel like we had a, a strong connection and, uh, and I felt like after those three days we spent together, um, we, he, you know, I felt like we had a, a strong enough connection that he trusted me with his story. I'll put it that way. Um, he asked me to write a profile of him for Notre Dame magazine, or they actually, they reached out to him saying, Hey, we want to do a profile. Do you have any people in mind? And he, su he suggested my name, which I was really honored about. So there was a, there was a connection there and, and I'd been reading his work for years. In those three days we spent together, one of the first things I noticed when I came to his house there along the McKenzie river, he had a deck outside the house where he and Deborah lived. And on that deck was a pre-dieu a kneeling bench for prayer that monks use a little wooden carved prayer bench and it was just sitting out there in his deck and to me that's a really emblematic image of of Barry that he adopted a kind of prayerful stance toward the natural world you know his impulse was to genuflect was to bow before the mystery that he encountered there and it it's it struck me it's always struck me reading his work there was a deeply spiritual quest going on for him. And part of that was his own grappling with the, the horrific childhood abuse, sexual abuse he endured for years as a young boy. Uh, and he later wrote about that. And one of those is the essays you allude to, Madre de Dios. Um, another one is Sliver of Sky that was published in Rippers. And, but it took him, I think, toward the end of his life to really write about that and a lot of that, um, I think a lot of his searching and traveling was perhaps partly a, a kind of spiritual working out of that trauma. That's how I would interpret his work in some, in some regard. But but above and beyond the trauma, he I think he had a deeply priestly stance uh, or way about him. And as I wrote in the profile, you know, he almost became a monk at Gethsemane when Merton was there. He went there with that intention, thinking he would become a monk. And 
I described the scene in that essay in which he realized that wasn't his calling. And he left from Gethsemane and drove straight to Oregon and a year later bought his place along the McKinsey. Uh, but I think he brought that kind of non-religious uh, spiritual, like he wasn't, he, he said he wasn't a Catholic, though he was trained by the Jesuits. Uh, but he sort of quietly and without rancor left the church and pursued his spiritual questions um, through his travels and through his writing. But he always maintained that kind of priestly voice in a way, the kind of voice of invocation is how I think of his writing, uh, creating the conditions in which the holy can appear. And um, and it's it was interesting to me too, you know, I think others who've read him have always kind of seen him as a nature writer and uh, writing about moral and ethical questions, but I hadn't really seen many people write about the religious or spiritual dimensions of his work. Uh, but in this new collection you referenced, Rebecca Solnit identifies that priestly aspect of his work as well. And she's not, you know, a, as far as I know, not a religious person or part of any tradition. So it's interesting to me to see kind of uh, people not openly connected to the Christian tradition, recognizing that uh, that priestly aspect to his writings, that kind of invoking the holy. And I think that's partly what makes his work so compelling. Again, it feels like, as, as I mentioned earlier, with the tension between just between silence and language or, or silence and writing about silence, the idea of an agenda is something we can obviously understand as being distinct from like a, a plan or a kind of an outline or a roadmap. But generally, uh, I mean, do you, when you are actually sitting down <clears throat> and you, you kind of have whatever experience, whether it's a trip or, or personal history experience, you know, you've got the material that you you now want to write about and shape into a piece how do you go about doing that? Do you do you kind of stumble through, um, or do you, do you just kind of try to vomit it all out in terms of an initial draft? That's often what a lot of people do, and try to be non-self-conscious and then sort of um, shape it. Do you do you try to have an outline? I guess I'm struck by that that um, that dynamic where at some point it does become a very practical. Um, thing and you often start at thirty thousand feet, but then ultimately you're you know you're you're editing in the true sense. You're deleting words, phrases, paragraphs. Like how do you go about uh, shaping an essay such that you can be consistent with that idea, but also you know bow to the to the necessary um, <laughs> realities of needing to get something onto the page in a way that that is workable for your own you know way of writing. Yeah. Well, I go with a set of questions on these journeys that I make. And, and sometimes, again, the journey is a journey at home, a journey into memory. So it's not always a physical journey, but I think of a set of questions that I bring. And I really see myself as an essayist and the whether it's writing, you know, a 2000 word piece or a book uh, and the, the French translation of essay is to try. And so when you're writing an essay, you're trying things out. You're just, you're exploring, you're using language as an exploratory tool. And when you approach it that way, it becomes a very different exercise than, 
here are the points that I want to make. What's the most, you know, flowery way I can adorn those points to make my audience believe me? <laughs> it's just it's just such a different way than like a sermon, for example, um, a, a different way of writing. So it's exploration. And for me, doing that exploring, it's um, it involves a lot of false starts. It involves a lot of ambiguity. Um, it involves rethinking the assumptions that I came with. So the story about Molly that I wrote, you know, as I even said in the piece, I came with a certain set of perhaps naive expectations of what would happen when I went and followed Father Columbus Stewart to Molly. And all of that got upended once I got there. And so that becomes part of the story, right? It's not a failure. It's just the story has suddenly changed. Will you follow the new story where it's leading? And that's kind of, uh, that's part of the process. And what that looks like in terms of the writing process itself, it looks like, you know, taking this Moleskine notebook and writing lots of notes as I go and um, impressions and ideas and, uh i'm very journalistic in that way i've got to get down details because i forget um my memory is a is a big open sieve that doesn't hold much and so i really try to uh to get the particulars down and then i come home and type up all those notes i type up my interviews i type up my handwritten notes and i'll end up with twenty thousand words of typed notes you know uh in a word doc and then i'll print that off and i'll read through it all I'll get out a highlighter. I'll start taking marginal notes on my own notes. I'll start to see what patterns emerge. And that's when I start to find something of a, of a way forward. And then the first draft happens and that's its own kind of essay, its own way of trying. Um, and then that draft turns into three or four drafts. And so it's a, it's a long laborious process. I'm a very slow writer. Uh, I wish I were faster, um, but for me, that's uh, that's been how I've gone about it, and and I think part of the um, part of what I'm doing too is I'm getting that I'm getting the language in my body, and that comes through the act of physically writing it down and then typing it up, and it, there's a certain kind of alchemical subterranean process that's going on through all of that. Uh, and it's long and laborious, but I think that's what for me has found, uh, I found has yielded the best results. Yeah, the writer, uh, the essayist, Charles D'Ambrosio, he's an essayist and a short story writer. He has a wonderful collection called Loitering. And part of it was written in Seattle. So there's a kind of Pacific Northwest flavor to it. But but his intro to that book is worth the price of admission alone. And he talks about the rhythms of prose are located in the body. So kind of getting that connection between prose rhythms and the breath, uh, I think is important. So yeah, all of those things are things I think about. Throughout your work and indeed throughout our conversation, there's there's this theme of you know solitude solitary practice the practice of the contemplatives who have come to fire your imagination the solitary practice of many of those people as writers and indeed of your own journey as a writer you also touch uh in some of your writing about 
just, and I think you mentioned it actually at the beginning of our conversation, but basically this exhaustion and or real disenchantment with church, by which I've understood you to mean in some ways both, you know, institutional Christianity and and certainly also in some ways the, uh, like the Sunday service or going to a church, doing kind of the, the formal practice of going to church. Uh, and yet there's also this afterthought of, of feeling like you're sympathetic to, or maybe it's just resigned to the, the need or the, the human impulse for structure and form and organization. And that that's, that's certainly going to extend to religion, spirituality, Christianity, that people are, people are going to sort of inevitably organize themselves into communities um, and, and, you know, maybe by extension have dogma, have doctrine, et cetera. But I did want to just ask you as, as we get ready to wrap up about how this kind of the whole, the whole body of work and the journey that you're on um, works with or kind of where you're at today with, with the church. Um, Cause you know, that's a, that's a term that can be really broadly defined, but even solitary contemplatives like Merton and the Desert Fathers were, in a classic sense, a, certainly a part of the church, if by the church we mean the sort of the worldwide and historical group of people who are seeking to live a life that bears witness to and follows Jesus Christ. And of course, there's a lot of cultural trappings that, that go with that in 20th and 21st century America. So um, I guess to, to put it maybe in a sort of digestible question, I would just say that I've, it seems like there's a distinction in your work between maybe the, the need for church as a, as a way to interact with God. And then, uh, which is to say that it's, that you can have that connection with God through the practices we've described and through your interior life and maybe indeed must in some way kind of work that out for yourself, but that you, it seems like you also still retain kind of a kernel of desire for, um, community, certainly with other believers, whether that, you know, takes the form of going to church or, or sort of participating earnestly in a denominational tradition. Uh, where are you at with that thorny problem these days? Well, as I wrote in a piece called The Gate of Heaven is Everywhere, the piece you described uh, in which I profiled Richard Rohr that came out in Harper's a couple of years ago, um, I wrote that I had pretty much left American Protestant Christianity, which I'd been raised in and consider myself a member for most of my adult life. Uh, and partly that was going through the pandemic and not going to church and realizing I didn't really miss it. Um, at least the church that I had experienced. And we've been going to an Episcopal church the previous 10 years. Before that, we attended a progressive Mennonite church and I had grown up in the Lutheran church and I worked for the Methodists for a while. So I kind of made the rounds of the Protestant spectrum and I found it pretty wanting and, um, and didn't. And, and again, I say that without animosity at this point, I think I've just kind of realized that's it's, it hasn't been, it hasn't served me. And um, again, because I feel like it's, it's been too cerebral. It, it doesn't focus on, um, on on the kind of deep 
contemplative encounter that I've been hungry for. And where I did find that was in monastic Christianity. And that's been a huge gift to me to experience that tradition, a, a long living tradition, mostly passed on by the Benedictines. But I would also say I've been slowly moving east in my Christian orientation. And uh, our, our family's been attending an Eastern Orthodox church for the past six months or so as inquirers. And I still feel I have a lot of questions. Um, I'm really distraught to see uh, the Orthodox world embroiled in this uh, battle between Ukraine and Russia and, and you know, the Russian aggression and, um, you know, Patriarch Kirill uh, basically being Putin's altar boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's become an apostate. He's left the faith in my mind. He's exchanged the gospel for Ruski Mir, you know, the Russian world domination dream and all of the, the bullshit that goes with that. Um, and, and yet, uh, ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew has, you know, condemned that as has, you know, other people in the Orthodox world. So there is a, a strong um, response against what uh, Russian Orthodox people are doing in their support for Putin. But all of that aside, um, I I don't think that's unique to orthodoxy. The, the temptation to nationalism has been part of Christianity from the beginning, ever since Constantine. So I think that's just a, a human problem that we have to grapple with, whatever our faith tradition. But I am very drawn to the Eastern Orthodox liturgy. And I would say that, um, that I felt the most intense, uh, some of the most intense liturgical experiences that I've had have been in that setting. Um, and I think we we can't improve on what John Chrysostom and his posse came up with back in the fifth century. Like to me, liturgy has been going downhill ever since. <laughs> um, and I think that's part of my disaffection with Protestantism and even the Catholic liturgy. It's It, it doesn't seem to be an improvement. It seems to be a, a watered down version of that original goodness. So I'm drawn to that original Christian expression and that ancient form of Christian liturgy. Um, how that gets lived out politically in the 21st century, it's it's still an open question. And I think that's part of the struggle. And if I were to become Orthodox, I think that'd be part of my struggle is fighting back against that nationalistic tendency within Orthodoxy, uh, which is a heresy. You know, nationalism is is a heresy. Uh, but the beauty of it is is compelling. And and I find it in so many writers too. Um, I've always loved Dostoevsky and Chekhov and uh, and so many of the Russians and Eugene Vodolishkin, who I mentioned earlier, is Orthodox. So I find that um, that vision of the faith compelling, and uh, and I don't know what to do with that. I don't have an answer uh, or a position, but I'm drawn to it. grateful to Fred for coming on the show, and I'm also grateful to Season 1 Faith and Letters alumni Chris Hoke for connecting us. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Fred. May the wind be ever, <laughs> May the wind be ever at our backs. 
some kind of Celtic reference feels appropriate after all this. Faith in Letters is a production of Fax Animus Studios. Tess Seabright is our production assistant. Fact-checking by Dean Gilbert. Special thanks, as always, to Lydia Bradley.